This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Welcome to the Delighted Customers Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Slayton, and I'm so glad you're here. I empower leaders to turn indifferent customers into loyal fans. I talk to guests with a wide range of expertise who share meaningful insights and wisdom. We give you practical tips and proven frameworks and share ways to help you delight your customers. I've been doing some research on what's most important to business leaders, and I've heard three major themes. Number one, their employees are burned out and feel overwhelmed. Number two, they're concerned about customer retention. And number three, they want to address customer friction, whether it's controllable or not, but they need actionable results. As a result, I've created the 120-day Quick Start a four-step program designed to go from current state assessment to specific strategies to get you actionable results in 120 days. If you want to make a quick impact, check out empoweredcx.com for more information. I'd love to talk to you. Well, my guest today, Lou Carbone, is really one of the icons in customer experience. He is the founder and president and CEO of Experience Engineering, a Minneapolis-based consulting firm dedicated to customer and employee experience management. And he's widely regarded as the father of the customer experience movement. Those of us who have been in customer experience a while highly regard Lou as one of our founding fathers. He's got to start in advertising, worked for a big New York ad agency, worked with big uh, brands such as National Car Rental, Walt Disney, Eastern Airlines, and Howard Johnson. He's the author of one of the hallmark books in our industry, Clued In, How to Keep Customers Coming Back Again and Again. He's been a lecturer at schools like Harvard Business School, Columbia, Cornell, uh, Cal Berkeley, and currently is on the faculty of Michigan State University, which has the first CXM degreed program. He has done work in his firm for Pizza Hut, KFC, Avis, H&R Block, General Motors, IBM, and the list goes on. Uh, but he is truly revered as an expert. He gets to share some of that wisdom with us. It was so much that we couldn't do it all in one episode. Had to break it up into two. I hope you'll enjoy. It was a real treat and an honor for me to have him on the Delighted Customers podcast. Well, I have a very special guest on the Delighted Customers podcast today. Lou Carbone is one of the founders, the originators, one of the people who was in the room when it happened, when customer experience became a thing many years ago. And um, he and Stephen Hagel wrote a seminal article um, that he's going to talk a little bit about that really was, was a spark that ignited what is today the customer experience management world and, and our profession. And I am so excited to have him on the show. Lou, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Mark. It's indeed an honor to be with you and a pleasure. And uh, 
looking forward to our conversation. We've always had such great conversations. Um, so really looking forward to um, our conversation. Thank you for having me on. Thanks, Lou. Um, Lou and I first met in in person in Michigan. We were at a conference uh, that Michigan State University hosted and our friend Tom DeWitt there, uh, one of the professors in marketing. And we were asked, Lou and I were asked to do <laughs> a podcast uh, and, and interview some of the incoming, the, the, the inaugural class of Michigan State University students. And we bumped into each other like we're used to doing these kind of podcasts uh, with a very preset workstation environment. And then we're asked to take all of our stuff to this lobby area and interview people as they're coming and going through these sessions. So, Lou, that was quite an experience, huh? It was. It was. Uh, trying to capture people that were on their way to a workshop or a session breakout. Um, I felt that we had to tackle people all month to get them to participate. But it was a great idea. And I hope that in the next conference, um, we learned and can actually uh, make it even more effective. But setting up temporarily was really a difficult task. But we, we had some good laughs over trying to figure out how to do it. We did. It was you know, we had different equipment and everything was just new. And so we had to innovate and um, it was, it was a lot of fun. And best part of it is I, I got to know Lou better. And then later on, I got to hear him speak in front of a large audience at the conference, sharing some of the ideas hopefully we'll talk about today. One of the things that's true for almost every single, really every single person I've had on the show and, and anyone I've talked to about customer experience who's in in our world is that they didn't come up in our world. And I know you you had a background first in journalism and then you got really into advertising in a big way, working with some of the biggest brands, not just in the US and the world. Can you tell us what led kind of kind of your path toward customer experience? Yeah, I think there are uh, two things. When I was in the uh the first big um epiphany for me. Mm -hmm was when I was a journalist and had an opportunity to interview a gentleman named George McGinnis. And George McGinnis was the last Imagineer that was actually hired by Walt Disney. And I was working for a small newspaper in Greenville, Pennsylvania, circulation of 10,000. <laughs> and uh, I had, my, my job was covering the police beat. And all of a sudden I had this opportunity to do a feature story with an Imagineer who was coming back to this little town in Pennsylvania to get married. I interviewed him and was so fascinated that uh, learning about Disney and learning about the sensory aspects and the total experience management system that existed that uh, made Disney an institution rather than a company. And I was fascinated by that. So. Um, he actually invited me to his home on the morning of the wedding uh, to share some photos that he had. Of uh, He designed the people mover. He designs uh, mm. the spaceship, uh, not spaceship Earth, but the uh, space oh, the, what, uh, the uh, roller coaster ride that's indoors. Uh, space Mountain. Uh, yeah. The people mover. He yeah. did uh, 20,000 leagues under the sea. Wow. 
an absolute incredible interview. So that was my first introduction to uh, literally thinking about experience and then brought that into my work in advertising and uh, worked with a number of major advertising agencies in New York, uh, an agency in Detroit, and um, then came to Minneapolis uh, to work on 3M Global Branding and head up client services here and applied a lot of the thinking that um, was presented um, in the interview that I had with uh, George McGinnis, and it began to shape some of my thinking. Um, but then the real deal came when I was representing four of the uh, participants uh, at Disney, uh, and was the liaison between them and the Disney Corporation. And at the same time was working with Howard Johnson's restaurants that literally went out of existence and became irrelevant. And um, that was monumental in my learning. And then uh, going off to literally experience what it was like to be inside a company when I became the uh, CMO at National Car Rental. And uh, during the era when we created the instant response vehicle, not instant response vehicles, we created the electronic rental agreement. Mm. We created Emerald Club, Emerald Isle, where you select your own vehicle. Um, all of these incredible uh, things that took place in the car rental business. And from there, began to launch the whole construct of experience engineering. So, um, tell me about tell me about one of the most fascinating things you've learned from speaking to the Imagineer, and what what have they done since then? To like, if they got rid of the the Imagineer concept, what have they done? And but what did you learn from speaking to them? that um, it was almost a, a sense of a disregard for the impossible mm. and the ability to really think things through uh, and to do it at the time without technology, uh, but understanding that experiences happen from the customer back and it's the clues and signals that are provided. So it was literally Disney's um, as a cartoonist, he had four frames to make an emotional connection and, and, and create something that happened. So when you begin to look at that, when you had movies, you have thousands of frames to create those signals and clues to create that emotional connection. Mm. So then when you had a live um, experience, you've got millions of frames to embed those clues in. And when you watched simple things like people losing cars in such a big facility, the simplicity of the idea of filling lots by time and noting what time these aisles were filled on a pad so that if you came out and couldn't remember where your car was, they'd ask you about what time did you park? So they jury-rigged a way of literally solving a problem. And I think that's where inventiveness and open-mindedness and, and not being 
uh, thinking that certain things are impossible uh, in the world of experience management. Uh, I was fascinated by the ingenuity that Imagineers demonstrated. Hmm. And then, um, and you, so you uh, wrote this article, I guess before you wrote, we'll talk about the book in just a minute, but you wrote an article before the book, right? Yes. Yes. Tell us about, tell us about what, what white space was out there to write that article. Oh, that article was kind of interesting because I had been practicing this from the time that I had met this George McGinnis. It changed my life forever. And then the work with Disney changed my life even more. So um, I was, I'd left National Car Rental. And this is a great story. I left National and was uh, basically unemployed, but wanted to become a consultant. And I was on the American Management Association's Sales and Marketing Council. And I showed up at a meeting and uh, basically it was the first meeting I went to. And I said, I'm, I'm no longer at National Car Rental. Suddenly people started handing me uh, business cards because I said I was going to consult. Back then, consulting meant you were looking for work. So I go back to another meeting and I still say I'm consulting. And all of a sudden, guys are like, okay, give me your resume. Uh, let me put you in touch with so-and-so. And everyone thought that I was still looking for work. Well, Stephen Heckel was the director of strategic studies at IBM. And so at the third meeting that I attended, I said that I was an experienced engineer. Steve said, what? And God's name is an experienced engineer. Mm. And I explained the work that I was doing. And Steve said, you need to write an article about this. And that was the seminal article that we wrote. In fact, the article was reviewed by Joe Pine, who had, hadn't even, his book, Mass Customization, hadn't even come to market yet. And uh, Joe was at the Advanced Business Institute at IBM, and Steve asked him to read the article. And we got feedback from Joe on the article. And uh, that was the beginning. It was published in Marketing Management. And it was all about um, literally looking at experience and how do you create management systems around experience. Now, experience as a value proposition was identified years before by by other people that said that the reason that people buy products, I think one of them was a gentleman named Morris. Uh, oh, boy, Lou can't remember the name of uh, he was a professor at Columbia. But he and several others said that people don't just buy products and services, they buy the experiences that come with them. Mm -hmm. So the ability to think about managing those experiences, because you cannot not have an experience, it's a question of how managed it is or haphazard. And that was the impetus for the article that Steve and I wrote in marketing management uh, on the basis of work that I had been doing for years prior to that. All right. So I want to interrupt you because I like to pull out the gems when a guest says something that I think we need to double tap on it. You just said something which I have read read in other places in your writings, 
um, but is that you cannot not, I love, I just love how, <laughs> how that flows. You cannot not have an experience. It's just a question of how well you, whether it's managed or how haphazard it is. That has become the biggest quote that of of my work ever and i hate to say that as a journalist it's a double negative so <laughs> <to speak. laughs> grammatically uh very tricky but it's so true that you cannot not have an experience an organization can't say well today we're not feeling too great so there are no experiences um and it's understanding that that many organizations uh, are haphazard in what I would call experience management operating systems, uh, that uh, a systematic way of managing experiences. And, uh, yeah. you know, the, the, the thing that gave um, uh, the birth of uh, moments of truth, which we now refer to as touch points with Juan Carlson at SAS, um, literally uh, looked at it as process management. And, and I think that uh, experience management is not really about process improvement uh, that and, and kind of fixing broken things, uh, that it is really about the creation of value, both on an unconscious and conscious basis. Okay, so, um, so it could be, and I, and I want you to expand on this. I don't want to, I'm really asking this in the form of a question, but it could be that, that either CX practitioners or people in organizations who are thinking about the way uh, customers experience their brand are too caught up in break fix and they make that their focus. So do you agree, disagree, and why? Oh, uh, very much so that everyone looks at what's the problem to be solved. And if we, look at getting inside the customer's mind and actually delivering. There's a big difference between being customer-centric and customer-driven. If you look at startups, what generally happens is they're customer-driven. If you look at Amazon's success, that is a customer-driven organization. And there's a huge shift that we're going to be into which is moving from make and sell to the world of sensing and responding. And that that shift is coming. And yet organizations are still caught in thinking of experience as, as um, we thought about it in the industrial age, that it's fixing things that are broken. It's about customer service. It is a whole different way of thinking about getting inside the maze of the mind of our customer, articulating what our customers don't even know themselves, and then how do we begin to build and deliver on that versus, oh, here's an offering. Oh, God, it's broken. I'm doing surveys. Uh, people don't like this. People don't like that. Uh, that's very much break-fix. It's how do we design experiences. I. I the analogy that I'll use often is what we're doing is inhaling exhaust, carbon monoxide, and then mm. trying, to, trying to get oxygen afterwards. Mm. 
And what we need to be worrying about is the fuel that we put into the engine of the experience versus the exhaust. I like that analogy, inhaling the exhaust and then trying to fix it. Yeah, yeah. trying to get oxygen. And so we're, we're really um, we're sucking tailpipes in a lot of customer experience work. And that's why the ROI is questioned. It's why uh, many CEOs feel that their programs haven't been effective. Uh, it's essential to understand that we've shifted into the world that Joe Pine describes as the experience economy, and that uh, that we're no longer in the industrial age. That uh, thinking about experience, uh, even as we get into manufacturing. And in B2B, I've always maintained in the work that we've done over the years is that um, life is made up of experiences. And the atomic, the atomic uh, structure of experiences are what I call experience clues that are built into the experiences that we have. But life is just a collection of experiences, family, friends, uh, business, and understanding the world of experience in and of itself as a science and how do we apply the art and science to that is, is, is essential. And I don't think that we do that as well in the world of experience management today as will need to be done in the future. Well, and, and so you are really the first guest that I've had on that's uh, talked and, and I'd like to talk some more about this idea of the brain, you know, and what motivates us to buy. Um, I had one of I think my very first guests was a guy named John Pico, who created this watermark study a while back. And he did some research and found that, you know, those CX leading companies way outperformed the laggards by like three to one compared to the S&P 500 over looking back, taking a look back. And one of the things he wrote in his, his most recent book um, was, I think it was called From Impressed to Obsessed in terms of customers. And um, as the name of his book, From Impressed to Obsessed. And the idea, one, one of his principles was that it's about shaping memories of yeah. our customers, right? The memory of the experience. But in order to do that, you have to understand pragmatically what is going through someone's mind and um and i'll tee up this question with a real life experience that i was fortunate enough to have when i was in michigan at michigan state university where lou had us all go through an exercise uh some people were going for cocktails i decided to do the exercise which was this clues this clues activity we had and we went across um, the parking lot to one of the biggest dining hall, I think it's the second largest dining hall in Michigan. Michigan State's a big school. Oh, huge dining hall. I mean, it was 11 stations, different kinds of food. I mean, you know, the kids should be getting fantastic grades with those food choices, let me tell you. Um, and so we went through, we had this worksheet and it was, it was largely about understanding clues, signals of what the experience was like um, and in a much more contextual way than you would normally go through that. So, and I know you're teaching at Michigan State, and it's part of what you're 
you're sharing with the students, but can you, um, John, while John talked about shaping memories, can you expand on that as to how? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and um, his work, I think he might have been a co-author with um, Jag Seth at uh, Emory. Uh, and I think the book was called um, Firms of Endearment. And the question that was asked was, uh, name a company that and it compared it to the good to great firms. Yeah. And looked at standard, they looked at um, S&P and looked at how they outperformed financially. So this idea of emotional engagement and imprinting that emotional engagement into the memory of uh, the experience that you have, how you remember that experience. The one thing that I think is so fundamental uh, that we lose sight of often is what I call the Brand Canyon. And that traditionally, we think about uh, and are obsessed with how people feel about the company. In essence, what we need to be concerned with is how the company causes people to feel about themselves, which in turn is how they feel about the company. And that's what creates a memorable experience. Uh, so this whole construct of um, unconscious thought, 95% of our processing takes place in the unconscious. And we actually make decisions before we even know we made a decision and then create an intellectual alibi for the decision that we make. And the decisions are based on uh, frameworks that exist in our deep unconscious thought and the limbic pathways of the brain. So when we look at um, an example that I would use is um, when the iPad first came out and I had an iPhone and I had a computer and I was like, boy, this is the dumbest thing. What in the world would I ever use an iPad for? And I end up at uh, a Best Buy and I pick this thing up and put it in my hands and, and I'm like, wow, this is really pretty, pretty cool. And I'm like, hmm, I don't even know what I'll do with it, but I need this. <laughs> and so I looked at uh, my rewards and I think I had $80 in rewards. And I'm like, oh my God, I've got $80 I can put toward this. And I walked out without really uh, understanding it. And I had made a comment to my wife earlier that what in the world is this iPad thing all about? So now I walk through the door with it and um, I'm like, I thought you thought that was a crazy thing. And I'd say, well, I had reward points that I put. Ah, there you go. So we create this intellectual alibi for an unconscious need that I had that felt like I needed this and I didn't even know why. But it's now become an, a very critical part of who I am and what I do. So this is the whole idea of being customer driven to a degree that they identified something that I didn't even know that I needed. But once I, I felt it and experienced it, I was like, if I walk out of here without this, I'm going to be missing something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this whole construct of uh, unconscious thought is so critical. It's what I call 
Um, what organizations need to do and what our organization has been, what Experience Engineering, the company that I founded decades ago, was dedicated to was understanding latent acuity, those things that we don't even know we don't know, and how do we uncover those, and how do we design toward those, uh, that if we ask um, very rational questions, <laughs> Um, and, you know, I look at measurements of sentiment, and, and sentiment is, is like, I'm happy, I'm unhappy, I'm this, I'm that. There's greater depth than that, uh, that, for example, there is a unconscious need that airlines fulfill that is built around connection. So if you look at Delta advertising today and look at United Airlines advertising today, they're onto it. They understand that they are in the business of connecting people and that that is the business that they're in. Fred Smith at, uh, at um, Federal Express said, we're not in the package delivery business. We're in the business of reassurance. So it's defining your business by the customer's need in terms of what they desire, feeling, and need versus the functionality of the business and the function that we provide. And, and tell us how, um, you know, understanding clues and signals, you know, how can companies do that and, and what makes it effective? What makes it effective is what I call clue consciousness. And uh, when prior to journey mapping uh, appearing on the scene, uh, what we would do uh, is a tool that was used at Disney that uh, they used to have um, models that were built of an attraction that were shoulder high on tables. And you would walk through and you would experience what it was, the sounds, the smells, all sorts of things. And you would look to the left, look to the right, look straight forward and say, what am I feeling? What am I experiencing? So we originally started doing that same thing. I remember working with a grocery chain and we armed people with cameras and they started out on the street, way out, uh, as you approached a grocery store and started taking pictures. And then they got into the parking lot, pictures to the left, pictures straight forward, pictures to the left, and made notations of what they were seeing and what it caused them to feel. Well, they, one of these clue scanning exercises, they actually saw weeds growing out of the sign in the front of a grocery store. And it's like, we're talking about fresh and detail. And I walk through this door every day and never saw weeds growing out of the sign over the door. Mm. So um, what we learned, unfortunately, was when you took all of these photographs, uh, we used butcher paper. And at the uh, offices that we had, it went on for almost a half a mile for each of the four grocery scores that were scanned. But what it developed was a sense of clue consciousness. What do I see? What do I hear? What do I smell? Uh, what taste comes to mind? Um, 
And that was what was so powerful. And what journey mapping has become is process management. And I think that the way that we look at clue scanning, uh, whether it's in the hands of employees, customers, um, is creating clue consciousness and clue conscious feedback when it comes from customers. And it's extraordinarily powerful. We've automated that system uh, so that we can now determine what an unconscious target is emotionally. Uh, then what we can do is actually analyze the clues that create that connection. And then we have a thing called emotional congruency, which is, are we meeting? And it's using, it's utilizing uh, techniques to get an unconscious thought that I've been blessed to have been influenced by probably one of my greatest friends and mentors um, over the years, uh, Gerald Zaltman, a professor at the Harvard Business School, where I was fortunate enough to participate in the laboratory of the consumer mind with Jerry and his team. And uh, we've had a, an incredible relationship and mutual respect for each other over the years. And I consider him one of the greatest inspirations in confirming and uh, this idea of clues and its impact on unconscious thought and, and then deriving what people unconsciously want to feel in an experience. Wow. So, you know, I, I think this is the future of experience management. And what I'm so worried about is that we focus on best practices, which leads to the homogeneity of experience. And what we need to be looking at is what are the next practices as we move out of the industrial age and into the age of experience management, AI, all of these things that are starting to come into play. Yeah, so so first of all, I find this incredibly fascinating um, and, and the idea of thinking uh, more deeply about your business, about how your customers really experience your brand and and. Um, if you're not in the if you're not in that world, uh, in the and you're not living in that world, and you're thinking if you're not thinking about client journeys or customer journeys every day, what you described about pulling into the parking lot, you know, um, the metaphor works regardless of of what business you're in. It's like before they even come in the door, right? Exactly, exactly. And uh, an example that I think you'll relate to um, is. Uh, work that we did with Royal Bank of Canada, one of our very early clients. Uh, Royal Bank wanted to merge with uh, with uh, Bank of Montreal, and the government stopped it. And the uh, Royal Bank was shocked that people didn't like them. <laughs> it was like, what are you talking about? That we're the bank for the elite people because we've got gold in the windows? Uh, they actually had flecks of 14 karat gold in their windows. And they couldn't understand why customers had this feeling that it was for the elite and not for every man. Mm. So the government kept them from merging. So we went to work with them. And as we worked through so many different areas, I think the one thing that you'll find interesting is the work around uh, in-branch someone actually applying for a mortgage. Mm. And what they did is they came up with customer satisfaction measures, which was walk them to the door, thank them for their business, 
Um, and I think there was something else, which was like, don't spit on them or something. I don't remember <laughs> what these things were, but they were how to treat people. Yeah. Well, what we observed, we used to use a lot of hidden camera work and hours and hours of looking at hidden camera. Hmm. And then the interviews that we would do unconsciously, what were you feeling? And then also somewhat with some organizations, we'd play back the video and say, what are you feeling at this point? So what we watched was here you're bearing your soul, giving all this information, filling out a mortgage application. And what would happen with the mortgage application was they were so quick to shake hands and walk them to the door, they put it on top of a stack of paper that was anywhere from an inch high to the highest one we saw, which was 12 inches high. Mm. And the feeling that people got was, when are you going to get to this? Well, we knew that the experience motif, what we created, is three emotions that were basic to loyalty to the bank. And one of them is feeling significant, which is different than feeling valued. So you felt very insignificant, even though they went through all this other stuff. You were like, when will they get to my mortgage application? So we created a clue that was called the grasp, which is you walk them to the door with the mortgage application in hand, like it is the very next thing you're going to work on. Mm -hmm. So I think you can identify with that with your banking experience uh, in terms of unconsciously what's going through someone's mind and the simplicity of holding that piece of paper like this is so, so important. You're significant to me. Yeah, I mean, what you just described also is like, you, you know, you're having to uh, pull together all this information. So it's it's a lot of work. In some cases, people have gone through life events, whether it's um, a death, a divorce, a, a, some, and they're having to pull up some of these documents that are very emotional. They're getting it all together. They're having to ask people. And then you bring, they bring it into you, and you're treating it like you're just a number. Exactly, exactly. And with H&R Block, when we watched people come in, uh, and again, with video and all sorts of different things, the way that they were offered a chair, because the person's on a per- uh, the the tax uh, advisor gets mm -hmm. paid by the number of people, they'd rush someone in and say, have a seat and point to the chair. Yeah. You're about to bury your soul. Yes. And what we did is created a clue just called the double pat, which is just a double pat on the back of the chair and offering the chair that built a sense of trust, a sense of being significant and important, and the other thing that was amazing is we put customers on a folding chair while the tax advisors on a big high back leather chair, which <laughs> judgmental. It, it, it's unbelievable. So you begin to look at these unconscious elements and it's extraordinarily powerful. And I think that what we deal with by and large in many organizations is the superficiality of process. That is deep. That is deep. And that's, that's really powerful. So if you're, if you're listening, I'm just kind of pull out another gem here is it's really easy to look at the touch points. I mean, really, if you've been in customer experience for a while, this is how you've been trained is identify the key touch points, which, which are points in the journey that you said could be moments that matter. 
and ask the customer, were you satisfied? Had you feel at those touch points? But what you're suggesting is it's really a lot deeper than that. And yeah. yeah exactly. If you start in the mind of the consumer, mm. touch points are not as crucial as the emotional roller coaster that someone is on. Mm. And the example of that was work that we did with progressive auto insurance. If you had asked where a claim started and made the assumption that claims start with a phone call, what, what would happen would be you would start with the phone call. But if you got into the unconscious thought of the progressive insured or an insured, because we helped bring progressive online and actually brought them to sell direct to the consumer. This was back when modems still had baud rates and sounds. <laughs> and what was phenomenal was what we learned was the greatest moment of emotional impact and vulnerability was at the scene of the accident. And we created the instant response vehicles that showed up at the scene of the accident mm -hmm. with a claims adjuster that was trained in grief counseling that had a cell phone on board, which was a big thing at that time, beverages, and could actually take people to their home or get them a rental car or whatever had to be done. That would never show up if you had done traditional looking at moments of truth or touch points, mm. unless you get inside the head of unconscious thoughts and feelings and emotions that people have in various experiences. Well, so there, there's a potential for a huge miss um, there if you're not doing that. And I want to I want to go back um, and, and, and number one, mention the name Clued In is the name of the book that you wrote. Yes. Back. And I know in the book you talked about the Howard Johnson story, right? Yes. And and so um, and there was like an there was like an eclipsing of the old and the new. Um, and I'd love for you to tell, like, what was the miss there? We just talked about misses in terms of a journey of a customer. How, how did the orange roof, you know, the, the place that so many people love to go and, and spend money? What happened? How did they what did they miss? It moved from. Uh, intuitive understanding of consumers, which Howard Johnson Sr. actually understood. And suddenly, his son, Howard Johnson Jr., went to one of the leading hospitality schools in the country and became interested in becoming a low-cost producer. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden, things like uh, using a commissary to create hot dogs, let's just give the specs to Hormel and if they can come close or whoever it was that they used, that's fine. Efficiency experts went in and said, we need to close uh, doing our own uh, clams. Let's, let's spec them and get them from someone else. Um, the idea of using and heating up food uh, in a, um, uh, a, what was at that time referred to as a radar range, which was a microwave. <laughs> and the sound of the bell uh, gave you the feeling that, that stuff wasn't prepared any longer. 
So there were a whole bunch of sensory clues. And um, what was interesting was um, business had declined. They worked on new concept development. And uh, what they kept doing was reinventing the same thing. It was like, okay, wait, this is Howard Johnson's with another name. But um, what ended up happening was Marriott uh, bought the restaurant group for its real estate. Uh, but it was all about cost cutting. It was all about efficiency. And uh, it is exactly what Peter Drucker says. It, the purpose of a business is to create value. The reward and the result is profit. When you begin to look at profit first, you begin to derive the value that's created by the organization. And that's where Howard Johnson misstepped. I think the toughest presentation I ever made was uh, with Len Berry from Texas A&M and myself to a group of restaurateurs. And in the audience was one of the gentlemen from Howard Johnson. <laughs> who was responsible for that <laughs> and he came up to me and he said you're right you're absolutely right we focused on the wrong thing well, at least he was humble enough to admit it to admit that i was worried i saw him sitting in the audience and i'm like oh no this is do i do i be as blunt and frank as i always have been about that and I, and I was, and it was very rewarding when he came up and he said, we were focused on the wrong thing. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have with Lou Carbone for this episode, but stay tuned for part two of two with Lou as we continue to cover some interesting ground and hear from the father of customer experience, Lou Carbone. Thanks for listening to the Delighted Customers Podcast. I'd like to ask you a favor. If you have enjoyed this episode or any of my other ones, hit subscribe or follow. I've got a lot of other great guests that are coming up and a lot of other great content, and I don't want you to miss anything. You can find any links or references on the show in the show notes, and you can find those on my website at empoweredcx.com. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.